podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Let's turn our Bibles to Galatians chapter number 2. Last week we were in Galatians 3. We're going to backtrack a little bit and we're going to hit on um, one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Galatians is one of my favorite books of the Bible addresses so many incredible things. Um, One thing I just want to say up front is how much of a joy it is to walk through this series with all of you. Um, I have been more than encouraged by how the conversations have been going. Um, If you want to get a Bible in your hands and follow along with me, if you could raise your hand. There's um, some brothers in the back who've got their um, Bibles in the hand. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. If you, um, if you just want to use a Bible for today, make sure to get one of those in your hands. Uh, today we're going to be continuing in our series entitled Tapestry. Um, now, the purpose of this series, Tapestry, if this is your first time with us, is that we are praying for a culture that supersedes our individuality while holding them as precious as they reflect the grace and glory of God. Um, I want to be really, really clear with this series, and that is the fact that we are not in any way asking for just a Sunday morning experience to just be filled with all cultures and genders and classes, although we would love to see that because I believe it reflects the kingdom. But we're actually calling us as a community to push into what it looks like to live life together in community as we reflect the grace and glory of God with, with people who may look different than us, who may think different than us, who may have different cultural backgrounds or different ages or different genders and learn what does it mean to be the people of God when we believe that all the dividing walls have been broken down and that Christ brings us into oneness. I am really convinced that a church in this neighborhood cannot just look like one group of people who are gathering around anything else but the gospel. Let me explain that. I would love for it when people walk into this room because they see all races to not be able to figure out what race is the most dominant in this place, right? I would love for it when people come in to look and see all different ages and them try to figure out, well, what age is the age of this church? I would love for it to be so mixed that people just don't understand how can all of these different people be in the same room and all of our answers be the same. Well, that's an easy one. It's Jesus that brings us all into the same room and not only in the same room, I love that person that's different than me. I love their life. I love the relationship we have. I, I'm, I believe, and if you'll let me have a, a moment of dreaming, I believe that that reflects the image of God, and it's been a dream of mine for a long time. Today we're going to discuss another sensitive topic. Um, if you are in, familiar with all the series that we're going through, last week we talked about sexism and had some really good conversations in our, 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 our redemption communities. This week we're going to talk about racism. And, um, and then next week, 
Uh, Wayne is going to be preaching on uh, classism, which because I'm not going to be here, I had him preaching to me in the van yesterday, and I was shouting, throwing hankies at him. I was, I was, he was sweating. It was beautiful. We had church in our, uh, in our uh, van the other day. And then uh, Wes is going to be preaching on uh, generationalism. Or he, he said he's going to call it ageism because he doesn't know how to say generationalism. Um, he just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Uh, um, so as you can see, it's going to be a big series for us, and it's going to be the same all the way through calling us to live in unity with one another. Uh, racism is this, and if you want to look on the screen up here, we'll, we'll have that definition up there for you. It's in mansions of glory. Uh, just kidding. Um, racism is a prejudice or discrimination or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Now, now growing up, I want to give you a little picture of my of my life. I was a, a pastor's kid in a predominantly um, white church. I'll just put it that way, um, predominantly. But my my father had a deep passion for um, multicultural kind of expression of church. So he would um, spend much of his time uh, building relationships with um, churches of other ethnicities and races. And so my father was deeply convinced that a church should look very multicultural and inside of that built tons of relationships in our city and then uh, was so convinced that he gave his life to missions and has moved overseas and has a beautiful expression of what I would say a multicultural church should look like. Inside of that, I was raised... In, in a school that um, was very mixed as far as racially. I mean, I had um, a lot of different kinds of friends, white, black, Hispanic, um, but I was always drawn to, I'm just, I'm just laying a little foundation of who I am. I was always drawn to uh, the, my, my, my black brothers and sisters. I was always in relationship and always had Friends, matter of fact, a lot of people would, would say that they think that I'm, I'm black at heart, right? Uh, because I was singing in gospel choirs. I was the token white guy in gospel choirs. I was always preaching in black churches and enjoyed my times there. I, I, I felt um, a connection with that culture. Matter of fact, a lot of people talk about, you know, our, our church doesn't look like a normal uh, church that has a diversity because usually you'll have a gospel band up there and that's kind of an intentional thing. Uh, um, and we have this incredible band who sings the gospel. So I would say, you know, there's the, there's the gospel band and they're singing the gospel, they're singing the things. But when I'm in my car, I'm not listening to this kind of music. I'm listening to Fred Hammond or... or, 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 or um, Hezekiah Walker or, or any of these guys that you're like, who are those guys? And that, that's fine. You don't have to know who those guys are. I enjoy that kind of music and I enjoy that kind of culture. Now, with that, I was always in those kinds of relationships and never had a sense of what that would do to shape me as I grew in Christ because one of the things that took place in my life as I became increasingly uncomfortable was a sense of going, what, 
why is it that when I go to most churches, it was uncommon to me, was there a really strong racial divide? It really sensed that there's black church and white church and Hispanic church and all these kinds of divisions there. And I never could understand why it was that we were so divided, especially strongly on racial lines. And so spent a lot of time praying and digging into that. I was always praying for as a pastor, Lord, would you help us to dig into this? But I did not have, let me make really clear, I did not have theological backing for why I believed that was true. And as I grew in theological understanding, um, I was surprised to see that this was such a deep-rooted theological issue that I, I was so convinced the more I grew theologically that this is a beautiful reflection of the gospel and then was surprised to see that theological lines even in the church seem to be dividing races even more than any other thing. Um, and so I was really convinced, man, if we're going to believe in this gospel centrality thing, what does it look like to live inside of this community? So not only do I believe the church has to wrestle with this issue and be a light to the world around it, but there's some always there's always things happening in our culture that will draw us to this issue. Most recent, I would say, is the, the Donald Sterling um, discussion. If you don't know what that is, the owner of the Clippers who, um, while they were in the playoffs, his girlfriend um, or his mistress recorded him making some very racial statements. I mean, extremely racial statements. And it had become, if, if you are a fan of the NBA, which I really love basketball, I, I follow as much as I can, um, but one of the things that is, is interesting is while it happened right during the playoffs while the Clippers were playing, people stopped really talking about the playoffs and all that was going on, and the racism of Donald Sterling became the highlights of every article um, over the last few months. Um, inside of that, what I thought was interesting is that as I saw the issues that were taking place in the Donald Sterling discussion, I would go on Facebook, and, and on Facebook there was a ton of comments from, from people around me, you know, people making comments about this issue. And, and I'm going to put up on the screen um, just some of the ways that I saw, let me, uh, I saw everybody dealing with this issue, but primarily um, when it came to this issue, how I saw those who were in the preferred culture dealing with this issue. One way to deal with racism is by minimizing. Um, this is our desire to believe that racism is not that big of a deal and it's kind of a, a freakish weird thing that happens only once and a while so when it happens it gets publicized and so what we say is it's not that big of a deal Donald Sterling is just a racist and he did this but this is not that big of a deal racism is 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 far less of a deal than it used to be so you hear people saying things to minimize it like racism is over or uh, people are making too big of a deal out of something and it's really nothing or those people are just being drama. They're overdoing this issue here. 
There's a tendency for us to look at sin like this and minimize it. Another way we try to deal with it is we individualize it. Now, if you notice, as a preacher, I, I like to try to make a homiletical flow to this. So all of I, I'm putting minimize, individualize, okay? Uh, just because I think it sounds good. Uh, uh, individualize means this. You quickly dismiss yourself from the issue because it's not your problem. I saw this happen all of the time. People who would say things like, well, I'm not racist. I, I, I would never do that. My favorite one is, I have black friends. I, I have Hispanic friends. I love all people. I'm not the problem. Now, here, here is, here's the issue when it comes to this issue of racism. We tend to individualize it so much that we can miss the point. Maybe you're not the problem, but what are you doing to help with this issue? When you over-individualize something, you assume that the only way to deal with this is by not being a part of the problem. Then there's another way of dealing with it, and that is, and I, I don't personally like this, I don't like any of these ways, but this one drives me more crazy than others, is prioritizing racism. <laughs> uh, there are people who will take um, racism and prioritize it in this way. They will make too big of a deal out of racism. And I, and I do think that there are people who like to make it the highest priority in saying racism is the root of all evil, right? It is the problem with all of the world, and they see racism everywhere they look. Everything is a racist issue. I don't think that helps, but I also don't think the other way helps where we try and make it a low priority on the priority scale. Here's how we do it. Instead of seeing this as a gospel issue, one that the gospel will address, we say, well, there are far bigger issues than racism. People are dying all over the world. I saw one quote from one you know passionate Christian who said I'm so tired of reading the Donald Sterling issue when there are people all over the world dying for their faith and then posted articles about all the people around the world who are dying for their faith and and instead of addressing the sin that was there they compared that sin to what they considered to be a greater sin and made it fall down the priority scale put it as a low priority for many reasons. The other one is I, I will call fantasize just because it has the eyes at the end of it, right? This is the idea that everything in the world is perfect. They have this real fantasy that everything in the world is perfect and they say things like, well, I just don't see color. I just don't see it. I'm colorblind. I just love all people. You know, the world is filled with roses and tulips and everything is fine. Just love. Just, just love. I don't see color. That idea of not seeing color, I don't think, is what God calls us into because God gives us these unique colors and spectrums of this color scale that God has given us different cultures and backgrounds. And when we say we don't see it, what we're doing is eliminating who God has made them to be in order to just say, I don't 
No, we're not, we don't live in some la-la land. Listen, I'm going to give you reality here. I can see when you're black. I can see when you're Hispanic. And you can see when I'm white. We can see each other's color. And color blindness does not fix the problem. Fantasizing doesn't fix the problem. We have to be real with the reality of we have different colors of skin and different cultures and different backgrounds. The last one is I'll verbalize. It was hard for me to come up with this many eyes. You should be impressed with my homiletics today. I, I, I'm going to say this. is There is two ways to verbalize, and that is one is to be very loud and outspoken and everything is racism. And then there's another way to do it and that is you are saying something when you don't say something. I hope you hear that. You are saying something when you don't say something. And we're going to look at Scripture and you'll see that even more clearly. Uh, here's, what, here's what I want to do just for a minute because I'm going to try to run through this and I know I only have a few minutes. I am not going to be able to tackle the whole systemic problem of racism in our nation in 40 minutes. But I do want to bring it to the light for a minute. Here's, here's, here's what I want you to hear. Racism is, is still alive, but, but I want to put a, 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 big, a, a big but right there. But for the most part, most of us, especially in, a, in the younger generations, are living in the aftermath of racism. Racism was such a huge problem in our culture and in the world around us, and much of it was addressed at least at a governmental level that many people have kind of pulled away from it and said, well, racism is, is, is still alive. And I do believe racism is still alive, but I think there's another problem that stems from the aftermath of racism that I won't call racism because I don't think it is racism. But I will call it something that many of you, including myself, can become really uncomfortable with. And that is something called white privilege. Now, I read an article that was posted, as we've been discussing in this group we call Tapestry, uh, that was given to me. And I, I, I read this illustration. I thought, man, we got to hear this. And hopefully we can lay down every, every uh, idea of what we think white privilege means. But I'm going to read this to you. Imagine a basketball game where a white team is beating a minority team or a black team or a Mexican, whatever team you want to put in there. And they're beating them 100 to 15. And at the end of the third quarter, at the beginning of the fourth quarter, just so you know, most cases a white team would not be beating a black team 100 to 15. And at the beginning of the fourth quarter, it's revealed, obviously, that the white team has been cheating the whole time. And the refs were allowing it. So, once it's revealed, the white team apologizes. The ref kicks out all the teams and says, no more cheating allowed. And during the entire time, you have been sitting on the sidelines while your team, the white team, was cheating. You didn't cheat. You didn't contribute to the, te the cheating. But however... At the beginning of the third quarter, because the whole team has been kicked out, you are put in the game, but the score is still 100 to 15. What do you do at that point? 
Here's what you have to understand when I say this word white privilege. And I want to make this really clear because some of us in our minds when we hear the word white privilege, we think you're calling me racist. Let me make it clear. I'm not calling you racist. Matter of fact, I don't think you're racist. I just think you have privileges that you're not aware of. Now, I want to give you proof of that privilege. I will put some ideas of that up on the screen. I want to just make some proof of that that some of us are not aware of, and hopefully this will open our eyes to what I think is the aftermath of, of real hatred and racism is this white privilege. We're in the game with a, a, a privilege that we're, we need to be aware of. First is this. We, put myself in that category, are arrested less. While people of color only make up 30% of the total population, there are 60% of minority groups in prisons across our nation. They only make 30% of our country, but 60% of them are in our prisons. This discrepancy is particularly apparent when it comes to nonviolent crimes like drug offense, where people of color are jailed for drug offenses much at much higher rates, even though the white community has a higher percentage of using drugs than minority groups. We will not go to prison as easily. The other thing, and you can study this out, but we are more likely to get into colleges. According to a report just done last year, um, that the elite educational institutions are a passive agent of perpetuating this privilege. The report found that students are still, white students are still far more overrepresented in those colleges than any other colleges. They're getting the highest of education. We are getting the highest of education. We are more likely to be called back from jobs. I thought there was an interesting article of a, of a black woman who, who in 2012 was putting her resume out on monster.com, made headlines, and you can find it on the Google if you ever want to check it out. Um, her name was Yolanda Spivey, and what ended up happening is she put out there an impressive resume and was not getting any calls back, and she went in and changed her name and her race and got immediately tons of calls. What is more shocking than that is it was the same ones that got her resume before and it was the exact same resume. What it shows in the world around us is that it is harder to get a job as a minority than it is for those of us who are white. Here's, here's another one that I, I put up there and I hope you can hear this from me, is that we are less likely to have damning stereotypes. Let, let, me make, let me make this clear. Every culture has stereotypes. But what I want you to hear is ours are far less damning than minority groups. When you talk about the stereotypes of minority groups, you're talking about things like 
They're angry. They're thuggish. They're activists. They're lazy. They're poor. They're late. And then you talk about white stereotypes, and it's things like they're nerdy. They're not athletic. They're goofy. Do you get, do you get that? That even just the thought that comes to our mind when we think of other races are damning stereotypes and the thought that comes to mind when we think of white race is just goofy stereotypes. Ones to be made fun of. The last reality, whether we like it or not, is it is harder for minorities, and I won't read uh, all the statistics on this, but it's harder for minorities to find adequate housing. It's far easier for for someone who is white to find adequate housing. The only reason I'm showing this is not to provoke white guilt. Because guilt is not a gospel response. It's not to provoke white guilt. It's for us to understand that the game is not equal. And for many of us, we have lived in this world where we've lived in the, in, the, um, in the preferred culture and we don't even realize we have this preference and because of that, we look outside of ourselves and go, well, they should just be able to do what I've done. Inside of that, we may not hate other races. We may not uh, be racist in the sense of we think we're better than other races, but we don't acknowledge our privilege. It's like walking into a game 100 to 15 and you don't even realize that based upon the past and the racism that's there, based upon the cheating of others, you've walked into the game with a better chance of winning. Now last week we talked about Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. And the reason we talked about this is because, let's, let's read it again, uh, 3.28, and we highlighted a specific part, but let's look at this verse just so we're all on the same page. Last week we talked about there is neither Jew nor Greek, that's speaking of race. There's neither slave nor free, that's speaking of class. There's neither male or female, that's speaking of gender, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what I want us to see in that is Paul is attacking this law-based kind of living. This gospel that is preached is a gospel of grace. That it's nothing that we could do. It's nothing that we could earn. It's not a position or a preference that we could give to ourselves. That God doesn't look down upon us and see our privilege, our strength, our power and say, man, I love you more than someone else. And he's coming against this self-righteous religious pride and he's declaring this gospel of grace. And in Galatians, I love it because Paul is just extremely passionately angry. And I think what you'll see inside of this as we study this text today is there's a reason he wrote Galatians 3.28 when he speaks there's no Jew nor Greek. Because he believed so passionately in the gospel that he would protect it against the law, because what the law does is build up dividing walls that Jesus has tore down. And he shows us that. Those walls of race have been tore down. Those walls of class have been tore down. Those walls of gender have been tore down. 
doesn't mean we're not different. It means those differences no longer divide us. doesn't mean that we don't have certain different things that happen inside of races and different sides. We don't. doesn't mean that. It means those walls have been torn down. What built up to that? Galatians chapter 3, 28 that we looked at last week. And I, if you could stand with me, I want us to read God's Word together. I want you to follow along as I read Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 21. I want you to remember this, that as we're reading, we're, we're reading God's Word. I'm going to read this quickly and make some points, and then we're going to take communion together as one ethnicity. But when Cephas, that's Peter, just so you know, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came in, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you though being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So when you have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because of works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in, your, in, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too have found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God, I pray that these words would sink deep into our hearts and that we would be called to walk in line and in step with the gospel in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Let me run through this quickly as you're seated. I want you to see what Paul is doing here. Paul, in verse 11 through 14, is extremely carrying on his, his passionate, angry, righteous, ticked offness, if you will. There's a word for you. He is carrying it on from the very first chapter and he shows here one example that I think we need to take a really good notice to. And that is this. Paul sees Peter or hears about Peter. Peter's one of the apostles who's preaching this gospel of grace. And he comes into a room, and get this, he sees other ethnicities sitting there enjoying a meal. He walks into the room, he sees them maybe eating pork, you know. He sees them, you know, and knows that they're uncircumcised, they're different, and, and he is experiencing the grace of God and says, man, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And he goes and sits at the table with them and is enjoying a meal until the preferred culture walks in. 
and without bashing the Gentiles, without saying a racist remark, he gets up from the table and goes and sits and eats with his culture, with his people. Now, I want you to notice this. Peter didn't, Don, didn't do a Donald Sterling. <laughs> he didn't get recorded saying a bunch of racist remarks. He got up from the table with the minority group and walks away and eats with the preferred. Why? Because the Bible says what his heart was. He was afraid what they would think if he was eating with them. At the heart of who he was is something that Paul says, and I like this, I hope that you see this, Paul confronts Peter, who is an apostle, in front of everybody. He calls him out in public. For what? Basically, for being racist. He calls him out in public, but I want you to know this, Paul was not speaking from a position of a minority who's speaking up for his people. Paul is speaking from a position of the gospel and he's using his apostolic preference. And if you know anything about Paul, he is a devout Jew. He's been circumcised. He's more zealous than anybody else. Paul could have just said, well, I'm not racist. And, and those people, those Gentiles need to stand up for their own rights. And they need to speak up for themselves. And they need to be, they need to be their own voice. But, but no, no, no. Paul confronted his own in front of everybody and called Peter back to the gospel. It wasn't an act of hate. He didn't say you're a racist or you're a hater. It wasn't an act of hate. It was an act of going towards preference rather than Christ-likeness. You see, people today may think, well, I'm not racist, I don't hate others, but the reality is we spend all of our time living out of alignment with the Gospel. And yes, it may not be, I don't hate people, but here's the question. Do you live like Christ, laying down your preference and loving others? Can I, can I help you with this? This is a reality check that all of us in this room, no matter what color we are, have to answer for. We preach with our actions. When people walk into this room, a message is being preached. Whether we, whether we see it or not, a message is being preached. And a message is being preached when you walk into a room where everybody looks the same. That's a message in and of itself. And what Paul is doing here is calling, if you look at verse 14, he's calling Peter to live in his true identity as a Jewish man. He's not saying, don't be a Jew. He's saying, a real Jew. One who is one of the sons and the, the daughters of God. One who is given this position as a son of God. His true identity 
is not because of where he was born. It's because of his relationship to God. Peter honored himself in front of everyone by getting up from the table of minority or the table of, 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 of weakness. He got up and walked to another seat and put himself in a seat of privilege where the Bible says, and Jesus gives illustration, that when you walk into a room as a child of God, you don't look for the seat of privilege. You look for the seat of weakness. And because of that, because he publicly honored himself, Paul publicly humbled him. I think it's interesting for the argument that Paul makes. He never calls him a racist. He never calls him a hater. He calls him back to the Gospel. Why? Because the Gospel is that which is this good and glorious news that Jesus, who had all the preference and all the power and all authority, did not sit, consider it something to be grasped, to be like God. He didn't go after power and authority. He had all of that. He humbled himself all the way to the point of death. He humbled himself and he came and took the weaker seat. He came and humbled himself all the way to the point of death death and in his death now we have this new identity that we're going to talk about and because of his life we have this new way of living but when Jesus rose from the grave he broke he broke when Jesus died on the cross every barrier was broken all dividing walls that would divide us have been brought down and now we find all ourselves standing before God, not based upon the law where some have privilege and, and others don't, but based upon grace. We stand on this line of, of equality before God. We're all created in the image and likeness of God. We're all redeemed by the, the work of the cross. And what what Paul is calling Peter to is not saying, don't be a racist, don't be a hater. He's saying, you're not walking in line with the gospel. And here's what he says in verse 20. What he said is, you have to know who you are. Can you go to the la this slide before this, please? You have to know who you are. Verse 20 says this. I am dead with Christ. Maybe the... Maybe the slide didn't make it in there, but let's, let's look at it. I am dead with Christ. Verse 20 says this. Look at verse 20 with me. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Here is what we have to know to walk in alignment with the Gospel. Because of Christ's death, because of His work, my debt has been paid the wall has come down all of these dividing walls have come down all privilege all all that has has divided us all that has kept us separated from God and one another has been knocked down because of Christ's death this even playing field has come into play all walls have been knocked down 
I don't have a debt to pay. I don't walk at a disadvantage with God. The price has been paid. When I know that Jesus has died and I've been crucified with Christ, that means I'm not trying to earn position with God and that means I'm not trying to earn position with you. The other thing we see is I've been crucified with Christ, verse 20 says, but it also says this, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This means my identity is different. Now I am not primarily white. I'm not primarily black. I'm not primarily Hispanic. I'm not primarily Asian. I'm not primarily that. That's not my first identity. My first identity is this. I am united with Christ. I am a follower of Christ. I am a Christian. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian who is white, who lives in Phoenix, a Christian man? What does this mean for me? All of it falls under, I am His. I have a new identity and it's no longer my life. It's no longer about elevating myself. It's no longer about lifting myself up. It's about living out the gospel. It's about living out this newness of life. What else does he say? Verse 20, look at this. He preaches the gospel. Verse 20 says this. I now live in this flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's a couple of things I want us to see. A lot of people have asked me, and you can go to that slide and I'll, I'll just say these, but a lot of people have asked me, why didn't you ask Wes or Wayne to preach this message? I understand why they asked the question, but I, I want to I make it clear. I was watching a, an interview with Doc Rivers, who's the coach of the Clippers, and in the interview they asked him about Donald Sterling, and he said something really interesting. He said, why is it that every time somebody makes a racist comment, we ask the minority group what they think about it instead of asking the preferred culture to speak? I think it's important for us to see this because some of you will understand this. When you are being attacked, and, and I, as a pastor, I understand what this means. People take opportunity to take out all their frustration and all that kind of stuff on me. And what they usually do is go to somebody else in the congregation and then say, did you know this about pastor? And then that person, because they love me, say, pastor, this person, this is what they think about you. <laughs> or they say it this way. There's some people. I don't want to say names. Some people. And every time that person comes to me, I've gone to this point. This is what I say. I don't care what they say. What did you say to them? Well, I didn't know what to say, Pastor. Very rarely do you ever find somebody who will speak up for you. Usually people will ask you to speak up for yourself. And you don't know, some of you know what this is, but you don't know what it feels like to have somebody who knows you enough to hear things about you, to hear things said about you, and to have a brother and a sister who would say, you know what, you're not going to talk about them like that. So me standing in this pulpit is not saying, Wes and Wayne, come up here and tell us why we should love you more. I feel like it is my responsibility, like Paul, to stand in this pulpit and say, listen, we 
You need to use the privilege God's given to us and speak for our brothers and sisters. We don't need to expect them to speak for themselves. It is our responsibility to stand and say, did you, not, did you hear what people are saying about you? But to stand and to say, those are my brothers and sisters created in the image of God and we are all one in Christ and you're not going to talk about them that way. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give just two pastoring points and I'll run through these really quickly. Pastoring minorities has been an incredible joy of mine and I will say this, I hope, I hope and pray that you know how much I love you. First thing I would ask if you are a part of the minority groups is this. Because of the work of Christ, do not say, just like we studied in 1 Corinthians a couple weeks ago, and I can't go back and study that. Do not stay. I don't belong. I pray that you lay down that whole thing and look for people of your race to find belonging I would say this don't walk into rooms where it looks so diverse or different or white or whatever and say I don't belong know who you are in Christ second thing is this fight the good fight the good fight that means there is a good fight to be fought and that good fight to be fought is a fight for the gospel not for your race to become the predominant powerful race. Here's what I will tell you this. When every race starts fighting for power, they're fighting for the wrong thing. And when you see a race start fighting for power, what they don't realize is they're starting to fight for not the good fight, not the gospel fight, not the the kingdom fight, but a fight for power would mean this. You would become powerful and another group would become discriminated against. Here's the other thing I would say. Let others fight alongside of you. One of the greatest joys as I've been able to unite with brothers and sisters of other colors is for them to begin to trust me to fight with them, that they're not in this fight alone. You begin to feel in the midst of the fight that everybody is against you, but hear me on this. As a part of the body of Christ, especially in this congregation, let us fight with you. The good fight. I want to say this. You are a valuable, needed part of this body. And when you come into a body like this, I want you to hear this. You are needed and you are valuable. And we know that you are suffering. And we agree and we know that according to what we studied the first week, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it is our responsibility to know your suffering and to suffer with you. Now let me take a minute to pastor those who are in the preferred culture, myself included. I'm not calling you to not be racist. What I'm calling you to is to walk in step with the gospel. That is far more than not just hating other colors. That means you would intentionally love other people. That means you would go out of your way to humble yourself and get below and live your life in a community with different people. That means you wouldn't just say, well, I don't hate anybody. You're asking a different question. Have you used your preference and your privilege for the sake of others or are you just comfortable just saying you don't hate anybody? How are you using your privilege is the question you need to ask. 
You should not feel guilty about having privilege. Why? Because God has made you white in this generation where privilege is a predominant thing. We have a privilege. Now, just because we have privilege doesn't mean we're all going to be wildly successful. It just needs to know we start at a different playing field. And when you've been given that privilege, the question is not, how do I get rid of this privilege? I feel so guilty for having privilege. That's not the gospel. The gospel would say, I've been given this privilege. How do I use it for the sake of others? I would say this. The question is not, do you hate other races? I think all of you would say no. The question is, how are you showing love? How are you pursuing love? The last thing is this. As the band comes and the communion comes, communion team. The last thing is this. I'm convinced that I want to use every ounce of the preference that God has given to me in this time and this place to lift up my brothers and sisters. I will tell you this. I purposefully, purposefully, intentionally have gone out of my way, out of comfort zones, out of my places of preference to build strong relationships with guys that I respect and love like Wes and Lynn. I love, I love you guys. Like Wayne and Rashida. Like Jim and Emily. Like Ernie and Lupe. These are not just people of a culture, big culture, all Hispanic. These are faces and names to me. They are people. And it's hard to discriminate when you, have, when you are in the face of these people. It's easy to be misunderstood. It's easy to have tension and uncomfortable things take place. But I will tell you this. I want to know people face to face, and that's what this means. I want to be so close to my brothers and sisters that when things happen in our culture and when things happen in our church, I want to be like Paul who knows the gospel enough that doesn't just sit there and watch preference take place, but is willing to speak up for the sake of the gospel. I want to call other brothers and sisters out and say, you know what you did there? Was acting in a way that is not in line with the gospel. You want to know how we're going to move towards tapestry? Is if those of us who have privilege in this culture stop using it for our own sake and start using it for the sake of the body of Christ. And that means we're going to have to become more racially sensitive. That means not just personally, but we're going to have to be looking out for our brothers and sisters when they are not being treated in ways that they should be treated in this congregation. Elevating and out-honoring and blessing the people around us, and that means we're desiring oneness in Christ. I love communion because of this reason I... I love the fact that we all sit around the same table no matter what color we are. I love the fact that white hands, black hands, Hispanic hands, Asian hands, young hands, old hands, male hands, female hands. 
I love the fact that they all reach for the same cup. They all reach for the same bread. And that as we drink of His blood and eat of His body, what we're doing is we are together a reflection of the work of Christ. Do you know that when we come to this table, the Bible says not only are we remembering Christ, which is what we should be doing, remembering our new identity, remembering who we are, remembering what, what, what He's done for us, remember the walls that have been broken down, remember all of that, remember Jesus. But another thing is happening when we do that. We're proclaiming to the rest of the world around us the Lord's death until He comes. And this is what takes place according to Scripture. When we're remembering, when we're worshiping, when we're unifying around the Lord's table, people will come in and see all of those differences and all of the things that should divide us And as we're reaching for the same cup, we are looking in the faces of our brothers and sisters and remember, we are all products of God's grace. It's only by grace that I've been saved. Nothing to do with my privilege. Nothing to do with who I am on the outward appearance. Nothing to do with how I was raised or what cultural background. But that because of grace, I have been made one with Christ. And because of grace, I have been made one with each and every one of you who proclaim Him as Lord and Savior, that nothing can now divide us. And we have to believe that. And hear me on this. We have to walk in step with that. How do we do that? We love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength. And we love our neighbors at ourselves. Don't be satisfied with not just hating others. To walk in step with the gospel is not just, well, I don't hate anybody. To walk in step with the gospel is a deeper question, and that is, how are you showing love to those who are different than you? As we come to the table, let's remember those two things. Let's remember the work of Christ. Let's remember our brothers and sisters that we've been brought near to. Let's remember and let's proclaim. And the other thing I want us to do before we come is repent. If there's anything in us, Maybe hatred, we need to repent of that. But maybe it's just retreating into our privilege. Or, or, or maybe for those who are part of minority group, it's, it's I'm going to fight for myself instead of believing that it is Christ who is the one who has paid the price and He's going to fight. And we no longer have to fight for our power and rights, but now we are fighting for the Gospel. And we know we belong because of the work of Christ. And all of us are melting into this beautiful tapestry. We're becoming one where this culture both, we lose our our color and then we gain it. It's more vibrant, it's more real, it's more beautiful as we are next to and living in community with others. So let's repent, let's remember, and let's proclaim. And as you do that, and they sing, come up the center aisles, grab those plates of communion and here's what I'm going to challenge you to do today's going to be something a little different I want you to find somebody different than you with that cup in your hands go back to your seat someone of a different race someone who's different than you and partake in communion together I know that's uncomfortable for us and I know you're I'm asking you to do something oh why would you do that I'm asking you to go outside of yourself and don't retreat into preference But find somebody near you who's maybe a different color and say, let's take communion together. God, I pray that today as we come to this table, that we would remember we are at this table by grace, 
because of your work. And we are at this table with other brothers and sisters. And as a community, as we partake together, we are proclaiming our desire to be living under your lordship as your people. In Jesus' name.